Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Hello, Great Britain. Hello, Manchester. Michael and I just watched Supersonic. Yeah. The uh, Oasis documentary. So now we can't help but come arrow forwards and say mad fret a lot, can we? Because the only way to show that we actually are from Manchester is putting a fake Manchester (laughs) accent. It's to fake our Manchesterness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to this could be the first or second episode of 2017, depending upon when we put up our we got this stuff for Christmas episode. <laughs> Did you like that? Hey, hey, mad for it. All right, ah, kid. So up, that's up, up the Man City. Up the Man City. Uh, yeah, because as we record this, it's still 2016. It is. But, it's uh, Christmas Eve Eve. It's Christmas Eve Eve as we speak into our luscious microphone and deliver our mellifluous tones through to the nation that listen. Across the world. To the nation and across the world. It's Hey Kids Comics is on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Coming up, we have a very special show about Todd McFarlane and his artistic contribution to the comic book world. And Michael will be talking to some Ponzi jazz player. Yes. I didn't know I tuned into BBC Four. <laughs> I love it when we dig out the BBC Four stuff. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Comic Book Hour. <laughs> like, our, like comics are a high art now. We'll be your guides through the lowbrow art form. <laughs> The lowbro art form of men in tights beating up other men in tights. That's what it would be, wouldn't it? But anyway, before we do that, it's uh, it's time to rummage. There it is again. It's time. It's time. I got no time and I need more time. A lot of that in Noel Gallagher's songs, isn't there? About is needing there? more time. What do you think that says about him on a psychological level? I don't know, that is an underlying... Mm, underlying subtext re- to all of re- Regret of wasted time, yeah. maybe. And we need more time. That you'll, one song. You'll, no, there's, there's lots of songs. I mean, I'd have to sit down and ream them off now, because you've got me off the top of my head. Okay. But there's quite a lot of them where he talks about needing more time. Okay. So, next time you're listening, you'll go, oh yeah, there, there's one where he talks. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, Dad, I can't was, help but notice, Dad uh, yeah. was right. Yeah, see? Yeah. Anyway, our first email tonight, speaking of needing more time, so hey, segue, professional segue, as you have come to expect from this show. Our first email tonight is from Chris Franklin. Harley! Was that subsequently, subsequently, Mm. was that sufficiently Mark Hamill enough? It was was close. It was good, wasn't it? I liked it. Hello, Leyland, ask and ye shall receive. Here's an email for your dried up shriveled sack. There's cream for that. (laughs) 
for your dried up shriveled sack. Are you aware of the name of the cream so we can share it with the listener? Uh, I'm not. No. Okay. Well, it may be called different things in, in different places. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. Anyway, uh, Chris continues, I'm with you 100% on the Batman adventures. In amongst all the nightfall out, it was a breath of fresh air. Classic Batman stories done in one, in and out. I bought every issue off the stands, including this one. I was gobsmacked. Did do Americans say gobsmacked? Clearly. That, brilliant. I, I never, I didn't think that travelled. I thought I was scouse gobsmacked. Duh. I was gobsmacked. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. Mm. Totally gobsmacked. Ah, kid. Hey, la. Do you like how I've gone from Manchester I, I to do, Liverpool? Yeah, I'm running the gamut today, mm. aren't I? In my... Um, my lovely accents. Gobsmacked, says Chris, to find it with a hefty price hanging with some serious Golden and Silver Age comics at the local con a few years ago. There's a reason that they're called cons. <laughs> I think its increase in value has more to do with Harley becoming her own cottage industry. The movie may have bumped it up a bit, but I think it's still going for some coin. I have to admit, I've been tempted to sell mine. Maybe when the kids go to college. What can I say about Mad Love? It's probably the apex of the animated series. My only gripe is that the animated episode was done in the new Batman Adventures style. And I really dislike that Joker design, but that's a minor, minor quibble. I agree the Harley Now in Continuity special was a bit meh by Deanie's standards, but I'm one of the few folks who didn't really care for No Man's Land in general. Joker's sexuality was pretty much verboten in the Denny O'Neill bat office and the DC in general at the time. Some creators, like Miller, had to hint that the Joker was gay. Then there was the rebuttal that the Joker wasn't a sexual creature at all, that he was asexual or something similar. The famous discussion between Wally West and Pied Piper and William Messner Loeb's Flash Run starts with Wally asking if Joker is gay, to which the Piper says he doesn't think the Joker even thinks about sex. And then, of course, the Piper comes out to his friend. O'Neill seemed to run with the same idea, which may be why the Joker-Harley relationship was missing that spark in the comics. It seemed very forced and shoehorned in. Also, the comic Joker had become a particularly unfunny bogeyman at this point, so without Deanie's and Hamill's manic switches between zaniness and scurriness, it just rang less true. You guys hit the nail on the head with the Suicide Squad movie folks not getting the Joker-Harley relationship. My son Andrew and I were discussing that walking out of the theatre. Someone should have handed them Mad Love instead of Harley's No Man's Land special. Great show, looking forward to the Batman vs Superman episode. Maybe you can do a spotlight on Steel to coincide with his film debut too. Chris, was Steel, what was Steel in? Was Steel in Suicide Squad? I, I don't know. I, I know he had his own film something? many a moon ago. No, Steel was... Isn't it a different steel? Is no, two steel? Steel had his own film. Yes, Kenneth Johnson wrote and directed it. Yeah, with no Superman references and no cape. And what's the point then? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. Mm. I'm sure some people have. If you've seen Steel, lovely listener, write in and tell us how bad it is. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it will be. <laughs> uh, the next email is about the Superman versus Batman show. It's like I plan this stuff. Isn't it? This is going back a while. It is, and it's well, it's going back a while in terms of me and you. It's not going back that long in terms of the lovely listenership. Mm. Those I released them. I sparsed the releases out so that people had a regular dosage of us. Right. Until around December time, when you were so late with your episode. No, I wasn't. It came out in December. They, they got two right hot on the heels of each other. Which wasn't planned. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this one's Gene Hendricks has, has emailed in. Hi, Gene. Hi, Gene. <laughs> I'm sure I've made that joke before. I'm sure it was funny the first time I did it. And I'm sure it's the first time he's heard it. <laughs> I'm sure it was funny every other time he heard it as well. 
Andy and Michael, being a post-crisis kid, I was always fine with Superman and Batman being on good terms, but not being friends. I never thought of them as being antagonistic, especially after the events of Ban of Steel 3, where they acknowledged their valid differences. Along those lines, they didn't figure out each other's identities and the Dark Knight over Metropolis storyline. Remember, post-crisis, the vast majority of people, Batman included, didn't think Superman had a secret identity. It wasn't until Superman asked him to look over Martha's scrapbook that Batman figured it out. Also, Batman lined his cowl with lead foil, on the off chance that Superman would be showing up in Gotham. As to the atheist-vampire discussion, it was always my option that the cross-defence against a vampire depended on the person's beliefs and not the vampire's. That's why Kitty Pride couldn't hold off Dracula with the cross in Uncanny X-Men 159. Being Jewish, she didn't have the power of belief in that symbol for it to do her any good. Nightcrawl, however, was able to put two pieces of wood together in a cross shape and have it work in that same issue. Now, if Kitty had used the Star of David, she would have been able to hold off Dracula like Nightcrawler did with a cross. I remember getting Batman Adventures 25 when it came out, even though I wasn't buying that title. Unfortunately, good though the story is, it was outshined by the actual world's finest crossover when Superman finally got his own series. We get a lot of the same stuff, Lex and Bruce in a joint venture, Lex's robots attacking Superman, etc. But the cartoon makes it fit better into that universe, in my opinion. You used to have that as an actual film, didn't you? Yeah. On the TV, world's finest thing. Video. Yeah? On VHS. Yeah. We bought that. You watch that loads. I watched it lots. I think it's great. I don't recall reading the Superman Batman annual. I know I was getting the series and I think I have a good amount of early ones, but the annual would have passed me by. This was when I was getting out of new comics altogether, so it's possible I just wasn't near a comic shop while it was on the stands. Sounds a bit off, though. Between the Superman losing his powers and the retread of the exoskeleton to stimulate powers, see Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, it's like I've read it before without even reading the issue. Gene Hendricks, host of The Hammer Strikes. Uh, and the Quantum Cast and Anime Freaks. See? All them little things at the bottom there. Yeah, plugging Plug. himself. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, um, that's a good point about the atheist vampire stuff. The yes. Kitty couldn't do it because she didn't believe in it because she was but Jewish. by that knowledge, yes. if she had Jesus Star David yep. and the vampire was a Buddhist, yes. then it should have no power <laughs> the, on him because va- he doesn't believe in the Jewish. The vampires are not Buddhists. The vampires are the vampires and the vampires believe the cross will work. Don't muddy but, the waters. No, because if it's all about the power of belief, then if you don't believe in the religion that is being used as a weapon against you, then it's not going to have any power on you. No, well, that's what we were discussing in the, in the show, yeah. if you recall that far back, which you, you don't really do. Yeah. But that was my counter-argument. To that yeah, point. yeah, that's, that's very true. Our next email is from Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey's emailed in. It's Sunday and I'm at work, so I'm emailing you because it feels like I should. The last batch of shows have been great. Tim Sale and Darwin Cook's Kryptonite story is a complicated beast for me. I was so excited for this story because it was first published in Superman Confidential, a series that was supposed to be like Legends of the Dark Knight, but for Superman. I've been wanting such a series since 1990. 16 years later, they give it to me. And whilst most of the stories were entertaining, it was too little too late. They were telling stories from Superman's early days in 2006-07, when he had a new origin that they wouldn't tell us about until 2010. So frankly, I just stopped curring. This story in particular was great, and I think you would tell the reasons as to why, but as some were reading the stories it came out, it was frustrating because it was so late. It reads better as a collected edition, to be sure. Part of me is still annoyed at the original's lateness. Then again, all of the Superman books were late on a regular basis during this period. Apparently, Matt Idelson, the editor, was curious as to how they should deal with this and used the DC Nation page to basically ask, well, what are we supposed to do? My answer was, you're job but that's all water under the bridge 
well, uh, I'm the editor, and like, what should I do about getting the books out on time? How about, you know, telling them that they don't get paid if they don't get it out on time? Mm-hmm. You know, they've been paid a, a rate. Well, get they get, it, they get paid by the page. Well, they get a page rate, yeah. Mm. That's how it works, isn't it? You should know this. I don't, I don't know this. I've been told by several professionals that I can't make a living from comics. <laughs> so, All right, so you're going to have to do advertising work or storyboards for films. Yeah. Actually, that would be awesome. Mm. You, you get ye down to Elstree and start working on the new Star Wars films. Yeah, that's true. Forgetting me, the juicy guys. And you'll be phoning me up saying, well, what can I sign? Sign a contract? Can't, say <laughs> can't tell yet, Dad. I've signed a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. I'll be like, Michael continues, more than anything, this was a lovely episode dedicated to one of the most creative people to ever work in comics. When I was lucky enough to meet him at Dragon Con a few years back, he signed my copy of the hardcover and drew a little Superman head sketch without me prompting him to. A truly talented and lovely human being. I really get broken up about a celebrity death, but this one hit me pretty hard. Your Throne of Atlantis episode helped distract me when I had to head back into town from Dragon Con to get my wife her medicine. I rather liked this story. It was the first Justice League story published during the New 52 that I did like. Up to this point, the book was kind of boring on a month-to-month basis, and this was the first time, I think, John's got to do what he does best with artists that click with him. I've yet to see the movie. I'm a little burned on the New 52 animated films. War was terrible, and I haven't gotten back to Batman and Son, which featured a scene where we learned that Damien was conceived because Talia roofied Batman. I'm going to move on now, because I can go on and on about how wrong that idea is. I appreciated your thoughtful analysis of the Harley issues you chose. I recently started reading Batman Adventures, and it is without a doubt one of the best Batman series ever published. This was a weird issue, but fun, and drawn by Mike Parabek, so all weirdness with Babs throwing a costume out at the end is forgiven. That Harley No Man's Land special was a big deal when it was first published. Weirdly, the novelisation by Greg Rook had a very different introduction for Harley. She stayed up hold in the asylum and was found by the Joker a few months into No Man's Land. It fit the novel well and reminded me I need to get the comic book version a reread at some point. The most recent episode was also excellent. That action annually is odd because of when it was written, and I tend to not look for faults. The answer To answer a question from the episode, this story took place before Batman and Superman knew each other's secret identity. That took place in Adventures of Superman issue 440, where Batman gave Superman the mysterious scrapbook that is being mailed to Clark Kent in Superman 5. It was one of Byrne's patented running subplots, even though anyone reading the book since Man of Steel 1 knew what was up. It's one of those weird things where Byrne was playing it like a mystery, but the audience already knew the answer. Superman gave Batman the scrapbook in Action 594, which had the first and last meeting between Superman and the post-crisis Jason Todd, and Adventures 440 was where Batman revealed that based on the scrapbook, he figured out that Clark Kent was Superman. As he was flying away, Superman called Batman Mr. Wayne, and thus, the post-crisis world finest knew who the other truly was. It's not sharing a room on a cruise ship and getting changed in the dark, only to have a passing searchlight reveal the truth, but it was okay. I appreciated the shout-out during the mullet conversation. Superman Batman was the very definition of hit and miss after Loeb left the book. Some of the stories were really engaging. Then there were the ones like Batman getting Superman's powers and becoming a prick that just had me confused. I will agree with Andy that the annuals were all very good and the highlights of the series. I particularly liked the Batman Beyond annual that is now worth a good bit of money because of Batman Beyond. I can't explain it, it's just what I've seen. That's enough of that. Thanks for getting together when you can and giving me an excuse to goof off at work by emailing you. Cheers! Mikey Mike B. So a lot of people emailing in to tell us about the first time Superman and Batman figured each other out. And we knew the answer to that question. We just couldn't remember it because we're lazy, mm-hmm. by and large. I think that's what we said. Uh, right, should we do one more? Sure. Let's do one more because we've got one from the lovely Damien Lee. Do you remember Damien? 
Damien uh, moved away. Did he? Yeah, he used to email another time and he got really upset because he was moving away and may not be able to listen anymore. Right. But now he's back! And he's emailed us with Afternoon Leylands. Before going any further, I have to say the Jim Lee episode won't download in full for me. I tried on two phones, a tablet and a laptop, but it only plays the first 50 minutes before cutting out. It could well be me, but by God, I've tried to listen. And because I'm lovely, right. I sent Damien a, a link to um, um, Dropbox. Right, I put okay. it in Dropbox for him so he could listen to the whole thing. And did that work? Uh, I believe so, because he didn't get back to tell me that it didn't. Right. So I can only assume, until so I receive further news, that it did. Because yeah. that's, that's the kind of guy I am for our listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, that extra mile. Uh, the extra, Every listener is important. That extra click. <laughs> it didn't take that much effort, that's, really, that's to be honest. Uh, Damien continues, I'm a few episodes behind with your current output, but I had to jump up for your Jim Lee special. I started reading X-Men regularly with issue 268, and it was the start of my lifelong love of both Lee and the X-Men. I'd read the characters before that in UK reprints, annuals and stuff, including the classic Alan Davis Psylocke Wolverine battle from issue 213 in the UK 1986 Marvel Omnibus. But Lee joined X-Men regularly, exactly as I was finally able to buy US comics again. I can't bury and ring a bad word about him. His beautifully detailed and kinetic action-packed art defined what modern Marvel comics should be for me at the time. Even now, 25-plus years later, he, Byrne and Davis are the first names I think of when talking about favourite artists. I agree issue 268 isn't peak Clermont, but as an 11-year-old, the almost every panel references to ongoing subplots and teases was mystifying but completely engrossing. It drew me into the X-Men for the next 90 or so issues before my first lull in comics buying and subsequent return. I don't know that I agree with the idea that Lee is declining as an artist more than he's been at the top of his game for so long that anything less than perfect Jim Lee looks off. In fact, it would come to some extent to be argued that he's maintained his style and power longer than any other artist. At this point in Byrne's career, he was changing up his style in a way that pleased only him. Miller, well, less said the better. Neil Adams, maybe? But even Ditko, Kirby and that first wave weren't exactly A-list by the mid-80s. And Lee, at least still draws pretty regularly at the same time, has been DC's big muckety-muck. McFarlane rode the same wave as Lee and has barely put pencil to paper in five years. Silvestri faded, Potassio burned out, and the less said about Liefeld, the better. As any artist also spawned as many imitators. Brett Booth, J. Scott Campbell, Roger Cruz, Richard Bennett, Scott Clark, all of the Homage Studios for that matter. Now, a lot of them are still around and working regularly. Any of the Liffey lot still kicking about? I bloody hope not. I'll never get that first episode of Brigade out of my head. Is he the perfect comics artist? No. Is he most capable of his peers, the best draftsman, the most influential, the most successful over time and still in action in more than just vanity pieces? Yes. Anyway, slight stream of consciousness sycophantic rant over. I'll regret this analogy, but they say you never love someone as much as your first. Well, Byrne was my first crush on Superman, but Lee was my first torrid teenager fur, and I'll never forget how good it was to be there and see his glorious covers on the newsstand in Sunderland. He made almost everyone around him look pedestrian without needing an outlandish McFarlane or absurd Liefeld style. One that, for me, is often the bar of how I judge comic book art. Anyway, I'm in school inputting reports, so I should really get back to it. Then I'll go back to your last two episodes. I'd love to comment on some of your other stuff, how the DC animated movies are awesome, including the new 52 series in particular, but should do some work. Keep on keeping on Damien Lee. Well, thank you, Damien. Damien also included a lot of stuff there about what is going on since he emigrated, uh, which was fascinating to read. So thank you for that, Damien, and thank you for getting back in touch. 
hope everything's going well for you when you've returned home for Christmas. Right, we'll uh, we'll have a break though at the email section, and then we'll come back with our Todd McFarlane show, similar in most respects to our Jim Lee show, only not about Jim Lee. Okay, back in a minute. come in all shapes and sizes coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it's digest cast a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s hosted by the fire and water podcast team of robin shag and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests it's digest cast because big things come in small packages coming soon to the fire and water podcast network Todd McFarlane brought me back to comics. In early 1987, as I neared the end of high school, I felt I should stop this comic reading lark. As such, I pretty much dropped all my comics in a failed attempt to prove that I was now a grown-up. I dropped Amazing Spider-Man with issue 288. Yes, I missed the proposal, the marriage, and Craven's last hunt. In the summer of 88, I was pootling around in St. Helens with my mum and my sister when I popped into the newsagents there just to have a look. This was one of those places I knew sold American comics, or those funny little ones, as my nan called them, and I just wanted to flick through one or two to see what was happening. Comics reading is always in your blood once you start. On the stands was Amazing Spider-Man 300. What's amazing about Amazing Spider-Man 300 now is there are no cover enhancements or gold ink, nothing that really makes it stand out. Sure, the number 300 is all over the cover, but it's left to the art on that cover to attract your eye. And to track my eye, it did. There was a very fluid and dynamic Spider-Man caught in mid-web swing in a dramatic image. He was wearing the black costume, which intrigued me because I thought he'd given that up. I picked up the comic and flipped through it. I was blown away. This was a drastically different art style than what I was used to, and it was a punch in the face. I kept hold of the magazine. I was buying this issue, and I rummaged through the stands for more. In addition to issue 300, there were also issues 298 and 299 of Amazing Spider-Man, both with art by the same guy. I picked them up as well. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. The artist in question was named Todd McFarlane. I'd never heard of him, his start as a comics pro pretty much coinciding with my sabbatical. Within a few weeks, I'd plugged the gaps in my amazing run, as well as bought various issues of The Incredible Hulk and the Detective Comics arc, Batman Year 2, and was buying Amazing Spider-Man regularly again. Looking back, this was very fortuitous. I picked up all these comics for cover price, most still being in the newsagent stands or on the rack at Odyssey 7. McFarlane came into comics via the back door. He'd wanted to be a hockey player, but an injury forced him to look at a secondary career. He'd always liked comics and doodled a bit, so the self-taught McFarlane started sending samples to the main comics companies. By 1985, he'd landed a gig on Infinity Inc. for DC, as well as issues here and there of Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, Daredevil and G.I. Joe. He started receiving notices when he started drawing The Incredible Hulk at the beginning of Peter David's acclaimed run, before squeezing in a few issues of tech, before taking over Spider-Man full-time. Within months, Amazing Spider-Man was back at the top of the sales charts, and Todd was a comic superstar. What are your memories of McFarlane, even though you weren't actually born when any of all this happened? The Venom trade. Oh yeah, you had my Venom trade for ages, didn't Have we still yeah. got that? Yes, somewhere. Yeah, I think we mentioned that when you were um, 
when we talked when we did when the we amazing spider-man yeah. yeah we did the venom show yeah yeah repeats yeah yeah we're at that point now where we're just repeating old stories <laughs> Uh, this episode was a suggestion from a listener who'd asked if we'd consider doing an episode like the one we did for Jim Lee on Todd McFarlane and always ready to steal a good idea I pounced on it. I had more of an affinity for McFarlane than Lee anyway which was the opposite of Michael who preferred Lee so this could have been made for a good show. I picked out three McFarlane issues pretty much off the top of my head and we're off. I tend to think of the start point of McFarlane's meteoric rise to fame as being the Incredible Hulk issue 340. Coming out just before Amazing Spider-Man 298, this issue is one of the earliest McFarlane comics to command a premium price on the back issue market. I bought mine off the stand in Odyssey 7 in Leeds. The cover has become instantly recognisable and was honoured with a pastiche in Marvel Zombies, which normally means it's reached iconic status. Penciled by McFarlane and inked by Bob Wyasek, Wolverine screams as he looks out of the cover. Reflected in his claws is an equally annoyed Incredible Hulk. It's easy to see what was happening here. The Hulk was a book nobody wanted and putting Wolverine in anything in 1988 guaranteed a boost in sales. The cover is undoubtedly eye-catching, even if, like Amazing Spider-Man 300, there's not really a lot to it. McFarlane does a lot with very little. Do you like this iconic cover? It's... There's nothing much to it. There's nothing to like or dislike. Isn't that an argument that can be made about an awful lot of McFarlane's work, though? That he does an awful lot with very little. It's because he's all scratchy and yeah. muddy. There's a lot of line work on it. Yeah. So it looks busier than it actually is. Yeah, because there's no background. Mm. Likewise, there's no background really on the Amazing Spider-Man issue we're going to cover later. Mm. It's all... but. Can you argue a case that on a cover like that you don't need a background? Because the top third of the page is the logo. That's a pretty large logo. Yeah. The Incredible Hulk. And then you've got the corner box, because Marvel was still doing corner boxes at this point. And then you've got the Universal Products Code. Mm. So I I think it does its job of being an eye-catching cover, especially at the time that this was released when covers still brought you in. Yeah. So it does what it's expected to do. Uh, Stan Lee presents The Incredible Hulk in a Vicious Circle. The issue was written by Peter David and drawn by Todd McFarlane. No Inca. So this was McFarlane all the way. As Rick Jones, the Hulk, and Clay Quatermain speed across Dallas in a stolen shield van, the X-Men, now led by Wolverine, prepare for an emergency landing at Dallas Fort Worth. The Hulk is hungry and cranky, so Clay takes a break. He's not sure where he is anyway due to the snowstorm. The Hulk leaps off to find food and narrowly avoids the X-Men's fighter jet, Blackbird. He doesn't avoid a commercial aircraft, smashing an engine. The X-Men leap to the defence and Wolverine tracks whoever it was that hit the airplane. He locates the Hulk but initially refuses a fight. This just makes the Hulk madder and he starts pounding on Wolverine until the old berserker rage reappears. The Hulk and Wolverine go at it, smashing down trees and generally wreaking the usual amount of havoc. The resulting ruckus attracts Quatermain, who uses a massive McFarlane firearm to stop the fight. Wolverine is slightly shamed that he was so easily tempted back to his old ways, but the Hulk doesn't care. The Hulk, Rick and Quatermain continue on their journey. Not a lot to this one really, is there? No. In terms of story. Unusually, there's no splash patch as well. Now, McFarlane was normally one for the big splashy, no fun intended, mm. no pun intended, no fun intended in this show, but no pun intended generally. Um, but he was a big fan of scene transitions and then bleeding into each other mm. 
in a very cinematic fashion. The opening page demonstrates his skill at that, and he was good at it. The lady holding the snow globe and shaking it starts the snow, which cuts to the large red hound, round headlights of the car trapped in the snowstorm. Uh, the writing also works with the images whilst also working independently of them so that the story is complementary to the artwork. Yeah. What do you think? Yes. There's no splash, is there? No. It's very weird, that, isn't it? I mean, his drawing of the vans wrong. Look at it. It's one of those funny-shaped vans. It's see, very definitely funny-shaped. You see it on later on. It's got a massive windshield. Oh, is that... So is, like, is it a Winnebago? No, is that what it is? No, it's a, a, a made-up shield car. <laughs> so it's not actually based on any type of real vehicle. If you look at it, yeah. you could not tell me that looks like any vehicle that's ever existed. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Having just turned the page. It also looks like it has six wheels, doesn't it? Just a, a shield car. Yeah, so the shield mobile. All right, fair enough. Um, McFarlane was very fond of his heavy blacks. Something that worked very well as printing processes improved. He's got the thick black borders around a lot of the panels, and a lot of them do have a lot of heavy inks in them, don't they? Yes. Like because it's taking place at night, the skies are very black. The snow suits the black backgrounds, the white against the black. So that's all all interesting to look at. Um, what McFarlane did an awful lot of was reinvent the characters that he drew in a way that he thought was evocative of the original creators. But by his own admission, he didn't actually go back and look at the original creators. So his Hulk is very Kirby-inspired without being a Kirby ripoff. Yeah. And he's still got that Frankenstein's monster vibe to him. He's got the brow and the the Beatles haircut. The very tiny face and the the big head. Yeah, yeah. The the face is all cramped on the inside, isn't it? Mm. Like, it's very compressed. His eyes are not too close together, but they're very small. And his nose is pushed up. Yeah, yeah. he's got a titchy nose. Um, There's a lot more lines on his face. He looks very much like a prune hulk Mm. rather than anything else. More beast-like. Yeah. But the shot of him leaping away at the bottom of page two is very, very good. Yeah. In the the vibe that they're going for, the early Kirby Grey Hulk, mm. which is what it looks like. So, uh, Felix the Cat makes an appearance in a McFarlane book. What is that? Is uh, it just a, a plushie? A jacket? Is it? It's because it's just there. It's not uh, on Rick Jones's jacket, is it? Why would three men have a Felix the Cat stuffed toy? I don't know. I didn't. I mean, did they win it in a fur? <laughs> did the issue before this, they stop at a fur ground? I don't know. I don't know what it's doing. But he would frequently drop Felix the Cat into his Amazing Spider-Man stuff. Mm. If you were looking for it. Right. I don't know if there were ever any copyright issues. Uh, McFarlane's handling of the X-Men isn't as good as his handling of, of uh, the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, Longshot looks like Limal. You remember Limal? Kajigugu? No. No? All right. That's 280s a reference. <laughs> but this was 1988. That's true. So it's it's entirely possible that was deliberate because he's got a massive mullet. Look at that. Mm. That is a dreadful mullet by any stretch of the imagination, isn't it? It is. Absolutely awful. Um, all the girls have exactly the same face. Yeah. They've got the big eyes, the pouty lips, 
And big 80s hair. Yeah, a and massive an, 80s hair. And an outfit that makes them look like they should be on a, a video workout. <laughs> yeah, instead of actually fighting people. The only one I would argue that is really good here is Havoc. Havoc that's, looks pretty good. That's just because his, his costume's not changed, he's just Havoc. Yeah, so, and again, it plays to McFarlane's strengths, because there's a lot of blacks and a lot of whites. Yeah. So that, that goes into his inking style. Um, nice Dallas joke from Peter David. Did you get that? I didn't. No, because if it doesn't matter, the X Men are going to die in Dallas. Uh, if we die in Dallas, we'll just come back in somebody's shower and it'll all be a dream. Ah, a Dallas gag. Right. You, do you, um, never, you don't remember Dallas. And do you? at the end of Hulk, it turns out that it was Satan all along <laughs> testing them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because they did that. There in we Dallas. go. I did yeah. a Dallas. See, you did a Dallas joke. Well done. <laughs> yeah, the last episode of Dallas was it's a wonderful yeah. life, wasn't it? How did you know that? Actually, I was talking about that the other day with someone. How does Dallas come up in your conversations? Because uh, there's this TV show. Basically, there are loads of cartoons that are all linked because they were all dreams inside the head of a boy who was in hospital. And some tells what? There we go. Yeah. And so all these TV shows are connected through that one thing. Are they? Yeah. And is Dallas one of them? No. Okay. All right, fair enough. Peter David and McFarlane build the action really well. The Hulk avoids Blackbird. Hits a commercial jet. It's pretty obvious from the setup who the engine's going to land on. Because the, the X-Men actually have this whole setup thing where they're like, we'll bring it into land, just toss the engine off, throw the engine away. We're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's going to be fine. It won't hit anybody. And who does it land on? The Hulk, which is just quite funny. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's a funny, if obvious, gag. Um, I do think a lot of Peter David's jokes are frequently quite obvious, but yeah. that still doesn't prevent them from being funny. Well, if they, they work. Yeah, and that one did. That was... Hulk was annoyed at that. That was amusing. Um, McFarlane's leader, which is a subplot in this issue and doesn't really matter to this story at just, all. Just this one page. Yeah, looks like Peter Wingard, but with a Telosian head. Okay. Do you know who Peter Wingard is? No. He was Jason King in some 60s TV show. Okay. He's thinking he's Cletus in Flash Garden. Cletus, I'm bored. Which one's he? He's the one who looks like Doctor Doom, so you don't actually see his oh, face. Right. Yeah. So that's a terrible example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember that guy whose face you don't see? He looks like him. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> or he would do if... Uh, or he would do if he didn't have the mask yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure I could come up with a better example. Google him when you're bored. Okay, okay. Peter Wingard. Uh, has the Hulk always had green blood? See, I thought it was a, a more of a censorship thing. It could be, but Marvel don't seem to be able to decide whether he has green blood or whether he has red blood. Because well, I did some Google foo on that. They can't seem to decide whether he's green, grey or red. Yeah, that's true. So, All right, yeah, it may have been a censorship thing that they may not have been able to show that amount of blood if it was red. And nowadays they can, yeah. so it makes more sense for him to have red blood. Because I don't understand why he would have green blood as the Hulk and red blood as Banner. That doesn't make any sense to me. The, when he turns into the Hulk, it gamifies. It gamifies everything, yeah. so it makes his blood green. All right, fair enough. Uh, the fight scenes between Wolverine and the Hulk are very well laid out by McFarlane. Peter David seems to write a far more visual script than usual, a lot of him for lots of close-up and big fight scenes, and McFarlane sells them. They're really entertaining. There are a few colouring issues. Wolverine appears very, very bright on page 15. Do you not think? But the impact of the blows and the rage Wolverine is feeling 
is all on McFarlane. He, he imparts that well. Yeah. Not a lot in the way of backgrounds. It's all black, thick backgrounds with snow a and a couple of trees. Forest. Yeah. So there's not really a lot going on, though, that you can actually say he, he's a competent artist. Mm. It is showy for the sake of being showy. But he does what he does very well. Which, let's be honest, if you're picking this up for a fight between Wolverine and the Hulk, you want a fight between Wolverine and the Hulk, don't you? Yeah. And that's what you get. So. Well, I kind of felt like there wasn't so much of a fight, because it's, it's, it's mostly just subplots, and the fight scene just spreads them out a bit. Yeah, and Wolverine's trying to avoid a fight for some reason, until the Berserker Rage kicks in. Which, I mean, I wasn't following what was going on in the X-Men at the time, so... Mm. I thought this was when they were in Australia. I don't know. Was that a completely different thing? I didn't thing? know what was going on in either book, so I I, I wasn't entirely engaged in it. Really? Because yeah. I, I honestly felt that it worked as a Wolverine-Hulk fight, but yeah, it's very definitely in the middle of an, of an ongoing plot line with the Hulk, isn't it? it well, for the X-Men as well. There are two subplots going on in this that... Yeah. I've not got a clue what's happening. I didn't have much of a clue. I didn't know why Wolverine's leading the X-Men. I didn't know what this team of X-Men were. I knew that he led them at some point. Right. Okay. Because a team of X-Men that has Havoc, Wolverine, Longshot, Rogue, Dazzler. Is pretty much the And Psylocke. Yeah. That's a C-list team. That's Batman and the Outsiders of the X-Men, isn't it? Maybe that's just... The, the Canadian branch of the X-Men. It, it could very well be, yeah. Although, Psylocke's British. Although, you know, part of the Commonwealth. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. The Canadian X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> Alpha Flight were busy. Al- Alpha Flight weren't happy to know that they were replaced. <laughs> Especially when By they found out. By one of X-Men. Hey! <laughs> Especially when they found out by your email. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, you've all been fired. Wolverine sells better. So we're putting Wolverine together with a bunch of C-listers. We think it'll be a hit. <laughs> Love Jim Shooter. <laughs> if Shooter was even in charge at this point, was he? No, no, it was Tom DeFalco at this point. Right. Alright, fair enough. Uh, I love that they make a big deal about the Shield Battle Van having an onboard guidance system in an era when everyone has sat nav. Yeah. So that was that was inadvertently funny. And the lady with the globe for those that care about such matters, was revealed to be Betty Ross Banner, who, despite everything that's going on, still loves Bruce. Um, Very much a showcase for McFarlane's art, being the last proper issue of the Hulk he would work on. As such, this is very slight on story, isn't it? He excels at the splashy fight scene, isn't so good at the quiet human moments. Hmm. And as such, David doesn't give him any. Instead, giving him page after page of the Hulk fighting Wolverine, which, like I say, is what people want when they pick up an issue of the Hulk fighting Wolverine. Uh, Good use of blacks, overly detailed art, all of that's in evidence. This is a a very early example of his work, and there isn't much, as much experimentation as there would be later in his career. It's it's quite a lot muddier in this. Yeah, and I think he would step away from that, and then he goes back to being muddy. When he gets his own Spider-Man and then Spawn Boot, doesn't he? Mm. I think he goes back to... I think it's his heavy use of blacks. I think yeah. he's, he kind of pulls away from that a little bit on Spider-Man and then he goes back to doing it. And But you can't deny that it's effective when he does do it. Yeah. So it's the panels it's, do it's stand a style, out. Yeah. But yeah. it's a very unrefined style. Well, he could you argue he was an ref, unrefined artist? I suppose. You know, I, I mean, it's an enjoyable issue. 
mm. I thought. Um, it all runs pretty quickly. By page four, all of the main characters have been introduced. The airline has been knocked out of the sky. The fast pace suits McFarlane's art. Whilst McFarlane seems to have a better work ethic regarding deadlines than his compras, there's still a lot of style over substance in this. Yeah. Isn't there? But I suppose he he was the break in all of the refined substance. Yeah. I, I think well, wasn't can... he more the, the punk in an era of classical? Yes. And you yes, you can argue the sheer amount of lines he's putting in the work is covering his lack of actual detail. Yeah. But yeah, he was the punk kid who came along, like you say, in an era of classical music. He was the punk kid who came along and said, Look, anyone can do this. Yeah. So, you know, on that level, it's uh it's I think it's um it's a successful issue. I I get the impression you're slightly less impressed. Uh of the issue it, it was just I didn't know what was going on. At all. Well, no, I could follow the fight and all that. I just didn't... The subplots didn't engage me because I didn't know what they were. But, like, back in the era of this, did, oh, would I'm, that subplot not have made you go, oh, I'll pick up the next issue of this? Don't know. Could have done. <laughs> Who can say? <laughs> was was this the snowy road trip going to take them next? <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, somewhere in between his commitments to Marvel and to The Amazing Spider-Man, McFarlane managed to squeeze out two issues, or an issue and a half, if we're going to be proper about it, of the DC crossover for 1988, Invasion. Invasion was a pretty big concept and was three 80-page issues with no ads, providing the spine of the storyline with the requisite crossovers into other titles. Invasion issue one came out in October of 1988, during the middle of McFarlane's Amazing Spider-Man run. It's a very different book for McFarlane, written and inked by a number of different people. Keith Giffen plotted the story and did breakdowns, which can be anything from chicken scratches to loose pencils. McFarlane then did full pencils, and the whole thing was scripted by Bill Mantler. Each chapter of the comic had a different inker, with part one being by P. Craig Russell, chapter two, Al Gordon, chapter three, Joe Rubenstein, and Todd himself handled chapter four. Now, for many years, I thought that cover was Todd McFarlane. Right. But apparently it's Bart Sears. Okay. By all accounts. And it's very War of the Worlds, isn't it? Yeah. It's the alien dominator reaching his hand over a symbolic earth, which, if you watch the 80s TV show War of the Worlds, was the image that opened every episode. Right. The three-fingered hand okay. reaching over the earth. It's a good show, War of the Worlds. Right. It's very cheesy. I don't think I've ever watched it. Oh, cheesy genius. Okay. Love it. Cheesy, cheesy genius. Uh, I ran out of time to do a synopsis for it because it's 80 pages. So this, I'm just reading off Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So thank you to Mike for doing some work for me. <laughs> In this particular instance. Two alien races, the Dominators and the Kuns, which you have to be very careful in how you say form an alliance. The Dominators, known for their superior intellect and strategic planning, have determined that the relative backwater planet of Earth poses a threat to the rule of the universe. The source of this threat is the potential of the human race to develop superhuman abilities. They conduct an experiment in which 50 random humans abducted from Earth are subjected to a killing field. They anticipate a small chance that one of the humans will survive. Instead, six make it through, with a seventh being wounded. One of the survivors is former Justice League mascot, Snapper Carr. With this evidence in hand, the Dominators believe that Earth's superhumans must be nullified. They bring other alien worlds into their alliance, including Thanagar, Daxam, the Citadel, Gil Dishpan, and Durla. 
The Scions and the Warlords of Ulkara also join the Alien Alliance. The first task is to prevent other worlds from assisting Earth. Several former members of the Green Lantern Corps are hunted down and killed. Adam Strange voluntarily surrenders himself to protect Ra. The Omega Men are captured by the Durlons with several of their team being killed. Other sympathisers are taken into custody and held in a gulag run by the Citadel. Adam Strange is held there. He meets a former police officer from Khan named Garen Beck and a man from Kulu. He tries to form a resistance without success. Eventually he is returned to Earth by Zeta Beam, but the Kuns are waiting for him. Once the Alliance is ready, they strike at Earth itself. Their target is Australia, which offers little resistance. The entire continent is defeated and its population imprisoned. The Tasmanian Devil is captured and I can't read that without thinking Down in Tasmania, down in Tasmania, down in Tasmania They need you! Which you don't remember at all, I do you? Does it, does it span around? I thought that was a cartoon when I was little. Could have been. But it got repeated on like Cartoon Network or something. All right, Only the has always been a thing. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the Tasmanian Devil is captured by the JLA Embassy before they can summon help. The Daxamites, who have agreed to join the Alliance of Observers, soon discover that they possess superhuman abilities on Earth. Despite the Kun's request for them to join the invasion force, the Daxamites continue their observation. Once the invasion of Australia is complete, the Dominators issue an ultimatum, demanding the surrender of all superhumans on Earth. Maxwell Lord receives presidential orders to hold back any superheroic counter-strike. The Spectre is warned by the Lords of Order. They tell him not only to stay out of the conflict, but to keep the other mystical heroes out of the fight. The United Nations then holds a meeting to decide Earth's response to the alien ultimatum. The Daily Planet prints their response. Earth to invaders. Drop dead. Ooh, good that. Said me writing it. Thanks, Mike. Um, there's very definitely a McFarlane vibe to the opening chapters, but there's something off about them at the same time. See, I quite, I quite like the bit where he's inked by P. Craig Russell. Which chapter was that? One. I think the first it, one. Yeah, I think Russell brings a level of refinement to the pencils. Yeah, because I think there's there is uh, an argument to be had that McFarlane never really looked good under other inkers. Right. Because, as we've pointed out, there's an awful lot of lines and detail that are covering up the lack of substance. Mm. So there wasn't really a lot for anyone to work with, but McFarlane knew what he was going for. So he only really blossomed when he inked his own work. Um, I do think the P. Craig Russell ones are nice. Yeah, you're right. I think it brings a certain professionalism to the work that isn't there when he inks himself. Al Gordon's stuff is, is good as well. But I think all of them, all of them bring something to it. Whilst leaving something behind. Whilst, yeah, it's, it's McFarlane, but it's, it's not McFarlane. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's got a McFarlane-esque vibe to it without having that quintessential McFarlane-ness. Yeah. And again, it does beg the question, like when we did the Jim Lee episode, was he a good sequential storyteller or was he not? Was he Flash style substance? I mean, it's nice that he, he draws the DCU. Yeah. Whereas I tend to think of him as a Marvel guy or an image guy, Spawn mm. predominantly. So it's nice to see him draw the DC universe. Despite the, the, the penchant for street-level characters, he does give good space opera. 
Yeah. You know, the aliens all look suitably alien. The spaceships are all He's, very well, well done. The ships and the technology in that have a, a, a burr, burn-esque-ness to them. Yeah. So the, 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 the space opera element of this is really good. And there are a number of good and unusual angles to the panel layouts. Yeah. So we're, we're starting to get more into experimental McFarlane than we perhaps saw in, in the Incredible Hulk issue. The roll call that we see on page 18 as we loop down the many different races of the Alliance, I really like that panel where we're looking down overhead. Well, that's the lettering, really. Yeah, because the lettering goes round in a circle. But it's his art that enables the letterer to do that. So that's a nice experimental panel. Mm. I liked that a great deal. And the the shock of the Green Lantern being killed on page 10, I thought that was a really effective panel, where he's, he's busy giving his speech, and then all of a sudden his head just blows up. Yeah. So we don't actually see what caused it until he blows up. That was that was really well done. Mm. But an awful lot of that comes from, from the script. Giffen's script for this issue, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of humour throughout this entire issue, I thought, that I'd, I did wonder how much of it Bill Mantlo scripted. Right. Because when did Bill Mantlo have his accident that rendered him hospitalised? I don't know. I don't know when that was. I'm sure it was the late 80s, but it may not have been. But there were bits of this were there was a level of humour to the script and the dialogue that I don't associate with Bill Mantlo. Right. And there's a there's a little part of me that wonders, did they leave his credit on so he got paid after his accident? But I don't know the chronology, which I would have no problem with. Yeah. And actually think that was quite a decent thing for them to do, if that's true. Right. But I, this reeked of giffin to me mm. more than it does does that does that boah hat hat hero of the justice league level of humor to it kind of like it's a a b-list alien film yeah that it, it's taken itself just seriously enough but there's still like a wry smile on his face it, it's a summer blockbuster that knows it's a bit b-list yeah and which there's nothing wrong with i mean there's a lovely funny line um on page 26 it's not art related but the line about the spaceship Needing the uh, it's five fifty thousand light year service. Yeah, that amused me. I thought that was funny, and there was little bits of that peppered throughout the story, little lines that made me smile, or little scene transitions that I thought were funny. Mm. And there was a lot of that in this that, that made me really enjoy it. It's very Guardians of the Galaxy, the yeah. movie. Yeah. Did you not think? I suppose. I like how all the uh, Omega Men who get killed wearing red shirts. <laughs> well, purple. Oh, yeah. the, the red in some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on on the ink. Yeah, a lot of the guardian, a lot of the guardians of the galaxy. Yeah, yeah a lot of the Omega Men get This, get this killed. kind of is that kind of story, though, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's Marvel's annihilation. Yes, pretty much. And it's McFarlane is really up to the challenge of the big sweeping science fiction epic. Yeah. So it's a shame that he didn't do more of it. Um, I do wonder when he drew it. Because it's an awful lot of work for him to sandwich in 80 pages of this and then 40 pages of the next issue. Maybe that's why he'd add four inkers then? Possibly. As well as, you know, then the second half of the second issue and then the third issue had to be finished by Bart Sears. Right. So other, I, mean, I think Keith Giffen may have done some of it as well. But other artists had to take this on. But the fact that on Amazing Spider-Man at this point, he was doing it twice 
monthly, mm. and he was inking it. So this will have had a definitive release date. So you're right, that may be why he didn't finish it. Yeah. The schedule on Spider-Man was just too much. And I only ask, because this looks like early McFarlane rather than Spider-Man era McFarlane. Right. And I wonder if he was working on it over a length of time. It could have been a months in the making thing. It could have been, but still didn't give him enough lead time to be able to, to finish it. Because um, it's good. The art is good. It's quite loose in places. There's some McFarlaneisms that we don't get that we're used to. Like I said, with the Hulk issue. But we do have the heavy blacks. The thick panel borders are all here. Other than the issue, the panel we just talked about of the downward look at the aliens, the panel layouts are all pretty standard. However, Keith Giffen did thumbnail layouts. Yeah. Excuse me. So it's possible McFarlane wasn't given free reign to do what he wanted. Now, I did read an interview with him where he said he quite liked that for this project because it kept him focused. Yeah. So... You know, uh, the invasion attacks Australia, and McFarlane's depiction of Australia is is really generic. It's just some buildings. Yeah, it's it could be any skyscrapers in any town. I know, but how many times have you seen? Well, how do we know where we are? Oh, because there's that very iconic landmark in the background. Yeah, but. You know, would there have been something wrong with them? Well, they attack Melbourne, don't they? Not Sydney. Yeah. So you couldn't have had the Sydney Opera House. Does Melbourne have any famous landmarks that, I can, that you can think of? Melbourne Opera House? I don't think Melbourne has an opera house. Yeah. All right, yeah. For, that, that's, I, I like these, all these aliens invade Australia and, and none of the superheroes are going to help them. Well, Tasmanian Devil tries. Was Superman while this is going on? Yeah, because this is before the the given any kind of presidential order, isn't it? Yeah. So this this ship shows all this fleet shows up out of nowhere, and Superman's not going. I'm gone. Wait what's, a minute. What's that over there? Perhaps he's at home reading Dickens. And he. <laughs> so he didn't hear the fleet come out of warp space. No, no, he doesn't really watch television. It's too much violence. So we can overhear the fleet coming out of warp space then. <laughs> you probably yeah. <laughs> What's that? They're only attacking Australia. Oh, I'll sit this one out for a bit then. <laughs> That's terrible. That's why they call them terrorists, Kent. <laughs> Someone watched Superman 2 the other day. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, the, the actual... The, I, you know, I thought this was really fun. Is Spectre... That's very Liefeldian. I like his cape, but... I. I'm not sure why he's prancing. I, I don't like his cape. I like the cape work. I don't like the gimpy prancing. There's too much cape work. And no face. Like, he just couldn't be bothered drawing well, I, one. I, I, I like that about Spectre. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, he, he doesn't... He just doesn't look right. The Spectre is just a floating cape <laughs> and, a, and a naked bloke inside. <laughs> I like his Amanda Waller. Yeah. I think his Amanda Waller is very really good. kingpin. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is very kingpin. I haven't read Invasion for a long time. And I must confess, I got it lumped in my head with other crossovers. I, this issue, though, I thought was a massive amount of fun. The writing's crisp, some muddy moment. The stakes are high. And I tore through this 80-pager pretty quick, even though it's it's a substantial read. Yeah. Isn't it? There's a lot in here. McFarland does a good job. It's not his best. Mm. But the script is working against his strengths, which was a reason that I picked it. Yeah. I wanted to pick a DC issue, but I didn't have any Infinity Ink. Well, 
as it was a blockbuster, was it not more name over substance? Yeah, I think that's how it was judged at the time. But rereading it for this, uh, I, I thought this was great. I remember reading it a few years ago, and you just kept saying, "Oh, it's crap! It's crap!" Yeah, I don't know what was on, but maybe I wasn't reading it properly. Maybe I wasn't giving it the attention it deserved. Right. Which is when you're reading it for the show, you do. Um, as usual with McFarlane, it's it's devoid of massive splash pages, so he doesn't get to do his usual cool hero shots. In fact, the only heroes that really make an appearance are the Tasmanian Devil, the Spectre, and John Johns, and they just kind of stand there or prance there yeah. and do nothing. So, and only the only the Spectre gets a traditional McFarlane hero shot. Mm. So, with the Jim Lee episode we did, I wanted to see if Lee was a good sequential artist. And as with that, I wanted to see is with this one. I want to see if McFarlane's a good sequential artist without the bells and whistles. And on this evidence, he kind of was, but yeah. there's still that little naggling thing in your head. In that the majority of this issue is space aliens and spaceships. So he can draw whatever the hell he likes and it doesn't have to look realistic. Mm. I thought he was a, a better storyteller on the issue of Hulk, though. Did you? Even though he's not doing the layouts here. Like, the first page of the Hulk one where it's the snow and yeah, the, the, snow and the lights. It was storyboards. Yeah. Whereas in this, it doesn't... Well, the, the storytelling's not that great without... The dialogue. Hmm. I mean, there were a couple of splash pages. But that wasn't him, really. No, the the dialogue's Keith Giffen and Bill Mantlow, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you can't read this without the dialogue. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's 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 the dialogue and the scripting of this issue that tells the story, and it's there that the story and the humour comes from. And the Australia scenes are the weakest in the book. But... You know, he, he could have been a solid comic book artist if he'd not become a superstar. His grasp of anatomy's not up there with Adams, Byrne, Perez, Bagley, Ivan Rice, or Paul Pelletier, is it? No, but it, it is the style in that case. Yeah. And it was getting there. Yeah. It's, it's got the potential. I, I mean, if you're getting that much money on being stylized yet not really knowing how to draw, yeah. then you're going to carry on not really knowing how to draw. Well, he said that in that Marvel's book, didn't he? Marvel's yeah. The Untold Story. He basically said the kids don't care. Mm. As long as I put a lot of lines on it and it looks cool, they're happy. If they're happy, I'm happy. If, I, if I'm happy, Marvel's selling millions of books. Yeah. So you do come a point where you're like, well, why should I bother becoming a good artist then? Mm-hmm. So... Picasso went downhill after he became popular. <laughs> did he? He did, actually. Yeah, all right, fair enough. In well, my opinion. Well, okay. What did, what did you think of Inversion 1? Uh, it was enjoyable. I loved it. I me. genuinely loved it. But I'm not you. It was interesting that it was, a, it was a big event, despite not having any major characters in it. I pr- they come along in issue two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. McFarlane has to draw Superman in issue two and, and other stuff. He doesn't do a very good job of that. Right. It has to be said. Big head, tiny face. Like, massive cape bulge. Right. Which doesn't suit him. Like Dean Kane in the early Lois and Clarks. And, like, the underwear, the red underwear's all the way up to his belly button. Okay. Like granny pants. <laughs> so, uh, that doesn't... It, it, he doesn't do a good Superman. Right. I think. Um, of course, you know, as we've alluded to throughout the entire episode, we can't discuss McFarlane without going full-on Spider-Man. Uh, and we've covered a bit of McFarlane's run on the character before. We've looked at ASM 300 and Spider-Man 1 yes. on past editions of the show. But I think without his run on Amazing Spider-Man, McFarlane doesn't become the superstar that he became. 
issue 302 of The Amazing Spider-Man, which I picked for this show, was cover dated July 1988. The cover has speech bubbles, which was becoming quite the rarity in the 80s. No one will stop me from having my revenge. No one! An off-camera voice screams, or cover, as the gun shafts of this typically McFarlane-style weapon smoke after being fired. Spider-Man's tattered costume floats in front of a bullet-riddled wall, the implication being that Spidey is being blown away. As usual for McFarlane, it is striking, it is eye-catching, it is cool, without actually having a lot in the way of substance. Yes. And that's pretty much it. I like the, uh, I I do like the black and red. Yeah. Although it's just occurred to me that that's not the black parts of the costume, it's the inside. Yeah, the costume's been blasted off him. But yeah, Spider-Man's costume does look cool when it's black and red. Yeah. And I kind of wish they'd adopt that a little bit more. Um, McFarlane, it is fair to say, revolutionised and defined Spider-Man forevermore. His became the style guide for other artists to follow long after he left, and his influence is still being felt today. In the canon of most influential Spider-Man artists, McFarlane is number three after Ditko and Ramita, and I'd argue he deserves that status. He never aped other people's style, producing something uniquely his own, and it was a shot in the arm the character needed at that time. After Tom DeFalco was fired, Spider-Man was in a rough patch, and a regular creative team was both necessary and welcome. Mid-American Gothic was written by David Michelini, with art by Todd McFarlane, again, no Inca. Uh, Peter is attending a job interview at Online Research in Emporia, Kansas, with company head Martin Jacobi. It looks like it's in the bag after a recommendation from Kurt Connors, but a tour of the grounds reveals some animosity between Dr. Royce Nero and construction manager Wes Cassidy. Nero is annoyed that the renovation work is disrupting his experiments. He's about to become even more annoyed when an acetylene torch blows up and spreads to where the gas bottles are stored. In the ensuing panic, Peter switches to Spider-Man but finds he isn't needed. The situation is well under control thanks to a super-speeding jackrabbit, Wes Cassidy. Spidey and Wes eye each other up, but each leap away, neither wanting to answer any questions. Another person who doesn't wish to answer any questions is Dr. Nero. Give yourself a pat on the back if you twig that he was up to no good. Spider-Man somehow tracks Wes to his house, and Wes explains that he was bitten by a radioactive rabbit. Yes, you heard that right. Wes asks Spider-Man not to laugh, and Spidey, seeing how Wes is really torn by this development, agrees. Wes has no interest in strapping on a fluffy pert tail and calling himself Bunny Man, and Spider-Man leaves him in peace. The next day, Dr. Nero bursts into Jacoby's office in a strange exoskeleton suit, demanding the secret plans from the safe due to some old grudge. Of course, Peter has just arrived to look over the site once more and make his decision, and so after the requisite secret identity shenanigans, Spider-Man makes the scene. Spidey is pinned down by Nero's sonic blaster and pleads with Wes to help. Wes panics as Spider-Man falls, but Wes dithers. Spidey pulls it out of the bag, webbing the sonic out of the way and landing a solid right hook on Nero. Peter meets with Jacoby as Nero is arrested and tells him he'll be taking the job. Back in New York, he tells a less than positive Mary Jane. The basic plot of this issue, Peter being offered a job in the science history that fits him like a mankini, would be done later by Byrne and is still being extrapolated on by Dan Slott. Is that still a thing? Yeah, that's that's still a thing, yes. I've Parker not, Industries. I've not, oh, right. Yeah, that's still a thing. Where was it he works before? Horizon Superior, Labs, yeah. was I've, that? I've not read it since Superior. 
you're not really missing that much. The the general consensus from what I'm getting is that Dan Slot has overstayed. Yeah, and this, this clone conspiracy one is... Some people are liking it. I, I think it's too much like wanky fan service. Right, okay. It really does reek of that to me. But you know, it's still it's still the best selling of the Spider-Man books. Spider-Verse seemed popular. Yeah, and, and this seems popular. Clones Conspiracy selling well. Amazing Spider-Man selling well. The new Renew Your Vows book is is selling okay and as all well. All of these are dance lot. The Renew Your Vows isn't Renew Your Vows. Is Jerry Conway. I mean, the right. worst selling Spider-Man book at the minute is the Miles Morales Spider-Man one. Yeah, that's right. that's and that's well below all the others. Mm. If you look at the sales charts, so Slot's doing something right. Because it yeah. seems to me that a lot of people are pushing Miles Morales and saying this should be the way forward. Yeah, but the you, sales don't back them the up. The sales don't back that up. So yeah. you can complain and bitch and moan as much as you want, but Slot's still putting bums on seats and dollars in in um, in tills. In, so Fair enough. What can you do? Um, one of the things I wanted when we looked at this was, could they be a regular artist? Like we just mentioned, Todd McFarlane draws uh, real people in a real lab. On the opening, splash. Is patch. it a real lab? Because it's got a few McFarlane-esque technology well, in there. Yeah, but it's it's real people wearing real lab coats with real faces in a real believable lab. Yeah, but at the same time, he seems to have the same issue with drawing feet that Liefeld has. He just blends the feet into the yeah. pants, and he does that all the way through the issue. You know, there it is on page one, there it is on page two, we turn the page again, there it is on page three, four, etc, etc. The only time he draws proper feet is when Spider-Man appears. Page nine. See what I mean? So it seems like he has the same problem, but he seems to get a pass on it. Whereas McFarland, Leafield, sorry, is the butt of jokes because of his lack of feet. See, uh, on this, the feet and the legs are the same thing. But they still look like feet. Yeah. Whereas Liefeld's regardless, can't do feet. No, but it seems like McFarlane goes out of his way to avoid drawing them properly. Yeah, but they still, it looks the part, despite it being the same thing. Yeah, it's only when you look at it with the eye of, wait a minute, that yeah. you kind of get away with it. Because, yeah, you know, the, Wes Cassidy's got boots on and he looks fine. And, yeah, so I, I see your point. I see what you say. McFarlane stuck out by changing the language of comics. The panel shakes on page four as the building shakes is an excellent effect. I mm. thought that was really well done. On page six, Spider-Man is swinging into the panel. So there's bits of him bleeding out of the panel, which I thought was all equally well done. And McFarlane draws webs in between the panels on page 24, which I thought was a nice way of, of preventing just the panel borders from seeming a bit dull. Yeah. So there's always something going on on the page, which which was interesting. Uh, Peter Parker does a great shirt rip on page four. Dun, 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 dun. I wonder if Sam Raimi read that when he did uh, Spider-Man, the movie where he did a shirt rip. Um, the panel that I just mentioned on page six is typically McFarlane. Spider-Man moving so fast the panel can't contain him. It's, it's the 300 pose, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I really, I, that's a very visually impressive panel. Um, he's always in motion, arms and legs flailing around, webbing everywhere. Um, leg above the rest of his yeah, body. Yeah, leg above his head. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, Murray Jane probably appreciates that he can he can contort his body in such a way. But, uh, I don't maybe the webbing comes in useful in other ways. I suppose so. Anyway, moving on. Um, how did Spider-Man find out where Wes lives? Uh... 
he, he looked it up on. He looked it up on Google. Yeah, which he, which didn't exist. He, at this he looked point. at the contractor's details. Well, he knows his name, I suppose. Yeah. So if you know, back in the day, yellow pages. His name. He's, was... he's wearing a very bad outfit. It's the eighties. He's wearing a cut-off top with Elmer Fudd on it. He, he looks like he should be running on a beach with his best friend. <laughs> and hugging him <laughs> after teaching him how to beat Club Alang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is that is what it looks like, yeah. Use of heavy blacks, again, very prominent in this issue. From, again, the borders to the use of shadow around Dr. Nero's head on, uh, on page 12. But that's excellently shaded. Mm. I really do like that panel. I think that's great. The cityscape on page 13. That's very black. I love that that... None more black, as they say in Spinal Tap. I love that that bleeds around the entire image so that yeah. the cityscape becomes the panel borders. Mm. So I think that's really impressive. It's only when we get to the middle of the comic that the slight ridiculousness of this rears its head. I know, but it's, it, it also kind of questions the slight ridiculousness of being bit by a spider and turned into a, a Spider-Man. Into Spider-Man, yeah. I mean, it's... He's bitten by a radioactive rabbit. This story's kind of like having its cake, going going to eat it, and then putting it back down again. And going, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's handled really well by Michelini because he doesn't emphasise the silly. He emphasises it into a serious thing. Yeah, he emphasises how much this guy doesn't want this to have happened to him. Yeah. And he's got no desire to, to rush out and be a superhero. If this was... A, a film or a cartoon when he says oh I was bitten by a rabbit that's the part where Spider-Man looks at the camera <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine what Matt Miller would do with this yeah. or any number of our current crop of too cool for school writers mm. this would just be played for laughs wouldn't it Yes. and Michelini goes down a different path which I was quite impressed with mm. despite the let's be honest inherent silliness of that idea yeah, you know it's silly. I know it's silly. Michelini knew it was silly. And the characters know it's silly. But they twist it into quite a serious character drama. Yeah, and that works, right? Yeah. So, you know, fair play to him. Especially when it doesn't go anywhere. He says, no, I have a great power, I'm not doing this. Yeah, power, responsibility, not for me. Yeah. I'd rather stay at home with wife and kids. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, valid. If, if you had the powers of a rabbit, though... If I had the powers of a rabbit, I would probably use them for nefarious crimes. Actually, if you had the power of a rabbit, you'd get castrated, like, quickly. No, yeah, but you'd be... Yeah, oh, no, that wouldn't be good, would yeah. it? <laughs> yes, let's move on. <laughs> Very impressed how Murray Jean's boobs can be so prominent through her coat. Oh, yeah. That's, that's quite a skin-tight coat she's wearing. It's like her arms and her 19. boobs are wearing a different coat from the rest of yeah, her body. it's very, you know, I'd, okay. Would you buy these coats, Murray Jane? Uh, but her face is lovely on the bottom of that page. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous rendition of Mary Jane. Uh, Wes's decision to not get involved is also equally well done. And it, it derives some drama from Spider-Man trying to convince him to man up. And I like that he didn't. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting He's twist a on it. reflection of Peter. Yeah. Whereas this guy's not interested. And Spider-Man figures it out for himself and sort of saves the day on his own. Yeah. So he doesn't really need him anyway. Um, pretty typical issue from the era. Michelini has a lot of subplots bubbling away in the background. Even if the main plot is standard fur. McFarlane's art is the real draw here. Being half a world away from how Spider-Man had been portrayed over the past 20 years. Arguably, a, a reinvention was necessary. Mm. And I think McFarlane came along at exactly the right time. 
to do something unique and interesting for this character. What did you think? What do you think of the art? What do you think of the the what's it? Uh, I enjoyed it. It is is the the, mi- the art was just standard Spider-Man McFarlane art. But it wasn't at the time. You're coming at it from the point of view of you know who McFarlane is and what he is. Yeah, yeah it's it's but it's it's the standard McFarlane Spider-Man art in that this is the same as the Venom stuff he did. Yeah. Whereas at the time that this came out, this was revolutionary. This mm. was completely different to what Spider-Man had looked like before. So yeah. you, you've got to give him props on that score, haven't you? Really. Um, I mean, I've always had a, a soft spot for McFarlane more than any of the other Image guys for the reasons I gave at the top of the show. He brought me back in. Sadly, as he made his fortune, he kind of left the regular day-to-day drawing board behind, which I don't blame him for. I mean, mm. you know, somebody told me I never had to work again. Yes. I would I would well, snap that opportunity right off them. The toys now, doesn't it? Yeah, he does. He, he still does the, the the toy company and stuff. But I would like to see him come back and do the odd Batman or Spider Man cover, just right. for old time's sake. Mm. I think it would have been nice if for issue six hundred of Spider Man, he would have come back and done a cover. Would it have killed him? Mm. Especially seeing as he did three hundred. Yeah, I think that would have been nice. But you know, we I mean he went on to create Spawn, which is still running, and his toy empire is pretty impressive. Yeah. So he's he's got he's got enough going on, really. That he doesn't need to go back to Marvel or DC or anything. But you know, just one for the fans, I suppose. Well, I, I like how his mindset towards Spawn now is talent hunting. Yeah, and letting other people give it a crack. He, he did a post earlier on where he says he, he likes to look around and hire people and give them a try out on Spawn. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's okay. All right, that it. Yep. What's your final thoughts on Mister Todd? You're a Jim Lee, aren't you, really? I like them both, but Jim Lee's more refined. Right. Yeah, I think ultimately Jim Lee... Well, Jim Lee's carried on. So Jim Lee's ultimately the better artist. But I think... I think McFarlane had it, and certainly his style was... McFarlane, from what... The odd stuff he draws now, Mm. he's still just as good as he would then. What, because he's not carried on? Yeah. Right. Okay, alright, fair enough. That's it, we'll wrap this one up here next time on our all new episode of Hey Kids Comics. The What's on the docket is Marvel's Eye of the Camera, which I'm very much looking forward to you reading, because uh, sequel to Marvel's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for that, hope you enjoyed this. If you want to email us, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, feel free, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>